Hello, friends. I'm finally back in the UK, and you will be delighted to hear that that means a return to the twice-a-week podcast publishing schedule, so let's get into it. This week, I'm sitting down with Christy Ashwanden, who is the author of Good To Go, What the Athlete in All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. Now, one of my favourite episodes so far was with Alex Hutchinson on the limits of human performance as he explained what he discovered during research for his book Endure. And today, we're going to look at everything on the opposite end of that spectrum. So from fancy foam rollers to cryogenic therapy, saunas, sleep optimization, uh, those compression pant things, those weird compression pant things, and every other form of recovery that you can think of and you've seen athletes using on Instagram We're going to go through them today. Christy has done a fantastic analysis of all of the different ways that people are trying to recover and assess just what sort of impact they're having. So if you are an athlete or you know one who is looking to improve their recovery, then today is absolutely for you. Please welcome Christy Ashwanden. Christy Ashwanden, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. So what are we going to learn about today? Ah, Exercise recovery, all things that have to do with exercise recovery. Okay. Recently, some of the guests will know the uh, spot on the back of your book that Mr. Alex Hutchinson, the the man behind Endure, is a, a big proponent, a big big supporter of your book. And obviously what he was talking about was a lot of the things to do within training, what's happening while you train and, and the experiences that you go through during a session. And you're now talking about everything else, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And I think that the two really make nice companion books. Um, his, his book is all about training itself, whereas mine is about the recovery process and, and all of these adaptations and things that happen in between workouts. Fantastic. So where does the book begin? Um, it actually begins at a place called Denver Sports Recovery, which is one of many, I like to think of them as recovery spas that have popped up all around the US. I'm not sure, actually. Are, are these a thing in the UK as well? I, I, I'm going to guess, is it one of those places where there's a cryo chamber and you can get an IV drip of, of uh, nutrients and stuff like that? Yes, right. exactly. No, exactly. we are unfortunately in the in the UK. That's uh, that's reserved for kind of elite level athletes. It's not the sort of thing you can go to a spa and have a massage and and, and go in a hot tub. But there's that's a, probably about the top end, I think, of uh, of what you can get in the UK. Unfortunately, yeah, that's interesting. I know that there are a few in Australia as well, but it, it's definitely become a thing here in the US. Uh, these places you can go in and for a fee, there are all sorts of things. So it's not just uh, massage and cryotherapy. Um, you mentioned IVs, which is another another common thing, but there are also all kinds of foam rollers. There are um, those, I, I call them squeezy pants, but they're, they're <laughs> pneumatic compression sleeves that you, they're sort of like sleeping bags for your legs. You put them on and then they, they blow up with air and compress your muscles. And it frankly feels really nice. That's another popular one. They'll have ice baths, saunas, uh, pretty much everything that you can purchase that would be used for recovery can be found at these places, at these recovery spas. Wow. Okay. So you're at this spa and and what's the what's the story from there? Yeah. So that was kind of an introduction for me of, of looking at, okay, when I was a, a, an elite athlete, so I'll just step back for a second. Um, I used to be a runner, then I became a cross-country skier and cyclist. And uh, when I was doing these these things at sort of an elite level in the early 2000s and late 90s, um, recovery was really something that we weren't doing. It was something, and what I mean by that is it was all these things that we weren't doing. You weren't standing up. You weren't staying out late at night. You weren't running around doing other stressful things. So recovery was really about, you know, lying on the couch, maybe putting your nose in a book, but putting your feet up and resting. Maybe you took a nap or something. But now, sort of in the interim, recovery has become its own thing and almost an extension of training where people are doing all of these things. They're putting on these squeezy pants. They're 
um, massaging all of their muscles with a foam roller. They're getting massage and massage is something that is, that is very old and was done in, in my time as well. But it's become something where there's a sense that you need to do all these things, that it's not enough to just lie back and wait for recovery to happen, but you need to do things to facilitate it. So train hard, recover hard, right? Exactly, exactly. If you're not recovering hard, then you know, you're, you're not doing enough. <laughs> I totally get it. So what, uh, during the course of writing this book, where was your mindset before you began? Because, you know, I, for me personally, I do see a lot of, you know, foam rollers that vibrate and and there's one mm-hmm. that's got, you know, this one will have a Wi-Fi connection and this one plays your Bluetooth music. And, you know, and you think like, okay, so how far do I need to go with these marginal gains before it becomes um, sweating the small stuff? So where, where, yeah. was your mind, where was your mindset before all of this? Were you skeptical of recovery or... Yeah, that's a great question. So I really tried to go into it with an open mind. So I'm a science writer by training and by vocation. And I think it's really important um, if you are having a scientific mindset, that means always being open to new evidence to sort of keeping an open mind and and making sure that you're truly looking at the evidence before you um, without too much bias and all of that. So I went into it thinking, you know, wow, things have really changed since, since, you know, I was a serious athlete and maybe this is something really important that I need to know about. Um, but I also had a level of skepticism because I thought, you know, this didn't always square with the things that I had experienced as an athlete and some of the things that I knew. So I guess I, I would say I went in with an open but skeptical mind. So it was sort of like trust but verify, I think is a really good mantra um, and an explanation of how how I went into this. So I was definitely open to the idea that some of this stuff, this newfangled stuff was really important. And in fact, I did find things that, that were good and that you know, there are some new things that I have adopted for myself after researching this book. But it also turned out that a lot of the things, you know, really weren't all that they were made out to be. I think that's fairly inevitable, isn't it? That unfo- right. unfortunately, it's an area where, especially when we're talking about marginal gains here, it's so easy for a product to hide behind the fact that it doesn't work with a clever marketing right. campaign. The, the, right. the, the direction of causality is is super like who knows like some days i wake up and i feel fantastic and i've only had six hours sleep you know like, mm-hmm. was it was it because of the very particular uh, bath salts that i had the night before <laughs> do you know like was it the incense that was burning in the corner or you know is it just a quirk of the fact that you're a dynamic system Right, right. I think that's a good point. We are dynamic systems. Our bodies are very adaptable, too. And that's the other thing. We've sort of been taught or sold maybe this idea that you know everything has to be optimal and that it's possible to optimize your body. And if you can just optimize that there's this magical thing that will happen and that yeah, you may be performing well now, but, but if you can get just all systems to this, you know, uh, mythical optimal state that everything will be perfect. And it turns out that although, I, look, I think that there is some truth to that. It's also true that our bodies are really, really good at adapting to different environmental conditions. I mean, we evolved to you know, be able to handle heat and cold and all of these things that we might throw at it. And so, you know, we're pretty good at, at, at performing under different conditions. And so although there may be things that you can do that will help a little bit, um, I think that the expectations that we have here are oversized. <laughs> yeah, I get that. So, I mean, you-, you, you, oh, so you talked about marginal gains, and I think that that's uh, an interesting way of putting it. And this is sort of one idea that's out there that like, well, you can do these things that on their own are really small, but if you put them together, then, you know, so if you have a bunch of things that only make a one or 2% difference, that may not seem like a lot, but if you do five or six of them, then all of a sudden, you know, you may be getting to six or seven or 8% difference. And that's really huge. And, and again, in sport, even those small percent differences can be very meaningful. I mean, in a, a race, a 1% difference could be the difference between the winner and someone who's an also ran. So um, 
that's one idea that's really been put out there. Now, there's been a lot of talk. Um, sometimes um, people who talk about marginal gains have been accused of, of you know, using that as a way of explaining uh, gains that might have been made by more illicit means. And that's a whole debate that I don't want to get into, but I assume that you're familiar with uh, some of that conversation. Yeah, I'm sure that everyone who's listening will be. So before we before we get into the meat of the individual elements, did you come up mm-hmm. with, a, with a definition or did you find an appropriate definition for exercise recovery? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's kind of where I started. And I thought, okay, the first thing I need to do is define this. And it was like, oh, crap. Like, this is actually a lot harder than I thought. And everyone I talked to would have a different definition. I mean, in terms of looking at it scientifically, like, what are the factors that will show that you're recovered? And what do we really mean by this? And so um, I guess I would just say that on its most basic level, I think, recovery is really about a return to readiness. So you've done a hard bout of exercise and recovery is basically, that just means that your your body is recuperated, it's rested, it's ready to go hard again. So whatever processes need to go on in between those bouts have happened. And it's it's this return to readiness that really underlies it. Across the entire system. Right, right. Okay. So you found your definition. Where did you where did you move from there? What were the first things that you looked into? So I started looking at, okay, what's really happening in the body when we're recovering? And, you know, what I found, and this this had squared with sort of what I had learned back in college and also my experience as an athlete, is that basically, um, you know, adaptations that we make in response to exercise are things that happen not during the, the training itself, but in the interim. So you don't get stronger, you know, while you are lifting the weights, you get stronger because your body, you know, responds to that weightlifting that you did and makes changes. And so you're creating like microscopic damage in the muscles and the, the muscle is rebuilding itself and sort of bolstering itself to become stronger for the next time. And so that's a, a really important sort of fundamental concept is that recovery really is when these adaptations take place. That's something that I've heard from, you know, even when you're a gym bro, when you're 18 years old and you start doing your first curl, first curls right. in the gym, you hear all about the the fact that you don't grow in the gym, you grow when you sleep. And I right. think even then I had a massive amount of skepticism. I'm like, oh yeah, whatever, mate. Like, you know, it's, it's not, I just need to, I just need to lift more weight. But your suggestion is that that's, that's correct. It is. And I'll also just say it's interesting that you bring up, you know, your younger self, because almost universally, as I was speaking to athletes about recovery and particularly very accomplished and and um, athletes who had been in the game for a long time, they almost universally told me that, yeah, when I was younger, when I was first starting out, I really didn't give recovery the attention it deserved. And I thought it wasn't a big deal. And I, I never really focused on it or gave it much of a thought. And as athletes age and as they get more experienced, they realize, oh, wow, this really is, you know, a lot of the magic here. And one of the things that I really need to pay attention to. And it's also true that as you get older, uh, your recovery needs increase. So that's another reason that older athletes sort of have a better appreciation for recovery than younger ones. Oh, I mean, when you're when you're young, when you're a teenage athlete, you're just made of rubber and fairy dust aren't you and you're, just, yeah. you're capable capable of bouncing back from anything and injuries just you grow a new arm and you you know yeah. like you lose an eye another one comes back like it's that it kind of does feel a bit like that but yeah as as you mature through your athletic career you become chronically aware of your own mortality i think absolutely and, absolutely yeah to a fault right <laughs> yeah totally so you've defined what exercise recovery is did you create uh, any broad categories of, of, of what contributes to that? Yeah. So there are a couple of things. And I think um, one really important concept that came to me and I think is sort of unappreciated or underappreciated by a lot of athletes is that your body responds to stress the same, whether it is physical stress or emotional stress. So in other words, um, we often, when we're thinking about recovery, think of it in terms of, okay, I did a hard workout today or I didn't, or today was a rest day in terms of what my training was. Um, but at the same time, 
don't give attention to, okay, what kind of stress is going on in my life? What's happening in my personal life? Am I stressed at work? Or if you're a, a student athlete at school, and these other stresses can be just as, as well, stressful to your body um, as the physical stress. And so to really recover well, you need to address the other stresses, you know, the psychological and emotional stresses in your life. And this is something that pretty much every good coach that I talk to has also sort of learned and and tells their athletes that, you know, if on your rest day you're dealing with uh, stress at work or difficulties at home, you're not really resting and you need to find ways to address the stress in your life. Did you manage to quantify the relative uh, contribution to or, or degrading of, of recovery based on um, those factors versus the, more, I guess, the more physical ones? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, but I don't think that it has a hard and fast answer. I mean, a lot of the stuff is just extremely hard to quantify. And uh, I have a whole chapter in the book uh, called, I believe, The Magic Metric, and that is all about sort of attempts to use data to quantify recovery and find ways to measure it. And it's really interesting. I'll just, this is kind of a spoiler, but there've been so many different studies and looking at so many different physiological factors. But it turns out that in the end, nothing really trumps just this um, qualitative measure of how are you feeling? And things like mood actually are a much better predictor of overtraining than something like, you know, something you could measure in a blood test or on a heart rate monitor. What's very interesting about that, and I'm sure that some of the listeners will be agreeing with me, is that in Endure by Alex Hutchinson, what he talks mm-hmm. about is RPE, or mm-hmm. I, as I've kind of readopted it, the um, rate of perceived discomfort, the RPD. Um, right. And uh, uh, he uses that and he says, you know, you can look, yeah, 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 you can look at the, the lactate threshold and the VO2 max and you blah, blah, blah. But the best determinant of someone's capacity to endure is how they feel under X degree of stress. And you're saying that this, I guess, what would we call it? Our rate of perceived recovery, the RPR perhaps, or the, right, right, um, you know, yeah. that would be, that would be the, the best overall aggregate global, um, figure that you could give yourself. Yeah, that's right. In the book, I talk about um, some different attempts. So there are some measures that are like little tests or things that people can keep track of various factors. And again, it doesn't go down to one single thing. Um, But looking at things like mood or paying attention to just sort of patterns in your life um, that people have been working on. And there are actually a couple of interesting um, apps and sort of computer-based or diary-based things that people can use. There's a really good, one of the best measures and sort of trackers for looking at at overtraining and and that athletes can use to prevent themselves from going over the edge um, actually looks at mood states and sort of not just how you're feeling, like are you feeling tired or not, but are you feeling moody? Are you feeling depressed? Do you feel like training? So it was really interesting for me to learn that like I I am someone who during my athletic career um, had some bouts of overtraining. And basically when this happens, you just you get in this hole and you can't get out of it. And no matter what you do, you're just tired, your your muscles are blown and you, you just can't, you know. It, it, you're not coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out, and you know, when I was in periods of overtraining, I almost always felt like I didn't feel like training and I didn't want to train and I was in a bad mood. And what I learned while researching this book is that those feelings and those moods were not, you know, at the time I thought, wow, I'm really terrible here. What kind of athlete am I that I mm-hmm. don't feel like training? But like, that's my body saying, take a rest, <laughs> you know, lay off for a while. And, and I think that this is really common though. And in fact, I have some stories in my book about other athletes of all sorts of different um, ability levels and sort of um, types of athletes who have gone through this. And it's almost universal. I think that if you are an athlete who's training hard, you're just really inherently driven. And so there's this idea that, you know, your body may be telling you, I'm tired and you think, I just got to push through this. And if I just go harder or do more, the rewards will be there. But it turns out that that's not how it works. (laughs) (laughs) It's so difficult. It's a very nuanced uh, appreciation to know, am I giving up because I am stopping myself before my uh, my work is done or am I giving up because I've pushed myself too hard and this came up again with Alex where I'm like mm-hmm. where do you draw the line between being a 
bit of a pussy, right. both with your training and with your recovery. And how do you know that you're still pushing yourself hard enough? And I suppose suppose the devil's in the details there. So if you were to take the the foundations that you've found in terms of the basics of good recovery, would you be mm-hmm. able to would you be able to take us through uh, those kind of what what are the building blocks upon upon which recovery should be started? Yeah, so the most fundamental and important building block is sleep. I mean, it's really like if if you were to ask me like tell me the one thing that works, it's sleep. And yeah, I would say that the top 10 or top 20 things that work for recovery are sleep, 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 sleep. <laughs> like it's really that important. Um it's sort of like sleep is the cake and everything else is just icing. Um it it really if you're not sleeping well and you're not getting enough sleep, you're just everything else does matter. And so sleep is a really important thing. Um, And also just resting and in the sense of um, relaxation, I guess, I would say. So that sort of, and by relaxation, I mean this sort of overall holistic thing where you're not just sitting still and not exercising, but uh, you're also reducing the stress in your life and you're feeling relaxed. Like that, that sort of rejuvenation and relaxation is really essential to sort of um, letting your body do the work that it needs. You're giving it all those resources to make those repairs and, and to make those adaptations that you're looking for. Was there a, um, a Goldilocks zone that you found for athletes who are training, let's say that a, a typical athlete's training, you know, between an hour to two hours a day, five days a week, was there a, 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 a an appropriate amount of sleep or does it vary massively person to person? So sleep is individual, but it, it doesn't, there's a lot of people that say, oh, I sleep six hours and I feel great. And it turns out, so there is a genetic condition that is extremely rare though. I will say like, chances are, if you think you're one of these people, you probably aren't. Um, there's a genetic a condition though, where some people really truly only need something like four or five hours of sleep. But this is something that runs in families. It's it's very distinct. It's not just like you think you feel okay if you get less sleep. It's something where people just fundamentally can't sleep longer. Um, but most people who say that they get by fine and feel great on say six hours of sleep are actually um, fooling themselves. And what is true is that they are just extraordinarily well adapted to sort of coping with the impairments that they have on that much sleep. So they're actually fooling themselves. And there's some interesting studies, which I talk about in the book, where they look at people, you know, who are sleep sleep impaired. And what happens is the first night after you don't get enough sleep, you feel tired and you sort of know that you're impaired and you you feel awful. But if this continues, what happens is you, you sort of stop noticing it. And that kind of um, cognitive impairment and physical impairment just becomes the new normal to you. And so <laughs> while you think that you're coping well, you're not. And, you know, probably if you asked, you know, your your coworkers or friends or whatever, they, they might be able to t- set you straight as well. Yeah. Okay. So it's, sleep is important. We've said that. Is there a yeah. is there a minimum amount that you would recommend for most athletes? Um, I mean, I think seven is kind of the minimum. And again, this is something individual. The very best way to figure out how much you need is to have and one night isn't enough. If you're if you're chronically sleep deprived, it's going to take you a while to kind of get caught up to where you're at some sort of baseline. But, you know, have a few nights where you are not setting alarm, don't have any reason to get up where you can just truly sleep as long as you as you want to and see how much how much sleep your body wants. Um, but I would say, you know, less than seven, you're, you're really playing with fire and a lot of athletes and having talked to a lot of athletes while writing this book, it seems as though, um, many, many athletes prefer to get a minimum of eight. Yeah, I think so for me, the, the, uh, listeners to the show will know that we are massive Matthew Walker, uh, evangelists on the show and we've uh, there was a, a podcast if you haven't checked it out it's uh, in the 20s I think maybe number 29 with Dr. Greg Potter from the University of Leeds as we talk about the definitive guide to sleep and in that we can talk about sleep hygiene and the room needs to be a little bit cooler and a hot shower before right. you go to bed and you know the darkness and uh, do it in line with the circadian rhythm sunlight exposure during the day and dark exposure at night etc it's all the sleep mm-hmm. hygiene stuff um, and you know, the the specifics of it aside, I think the bottom line is kind of the same as time under tension, right? It's like you, you can try and fine tune your environment as much as you want, but it's the equivalent of buying a really nice pair of running shoes and never going out for a run. You're like, look, like just, just go to sleep and get some sleep right. for a bit. Right, right. 
Um, Absolutely. And so much of it, like you like you say, is really about building good habits. It shouldn't be a special thing that you're trying to get more sleep before a competition or after a hard workout, but that it really becomes like the way that you live an important part of your life. And really, I think that it's important to note here that one of the ways that what, or one of the things that needs to happen for this to, you know, for you to get good sleep is to prioritize it. You know, we're just in an era where we have things constantly at us and vying for our attention. And it's really easy to get caught up in screens and different things. And you just have to say, look, sleep is a priority for me. And it's something that I'm going to prioritize over, you know, there may be other things that you have to give up or that you have to give lesser attention to in order to get that sleep. But until you prioritize it, it's just, it's not going to happen for you. Yeah, I get that. So sleep is important. How, how about recovering through our diet? Yes. Good question. So, uh, Food is really important for recovery. You're obviously hard workout. You're burning through carbs, protein, um, all all kinds of things. You're using energy that you need to replenish. Um, You need to, our our muscles um, are fueled on glycogen. So you have these glycogen stores. And so after particularly an endurance workout, um, these can be depleted. And so you want to replenish those stores. Um, but what I found out while researching the book was kind of interesting. And that is, um, yes, nutrition is absolutely important. Of course it is. Um, but we've kind of made it out to be something more precise than it is. So um, it's important to get carbs. It's important to get protein. And as you get older, protein becomes a little bit more important too. Um, this is a little bit preliminary, but it seems as though as you get older, uh, your body's ability to sort of take up protein um, becomes a little bit impaired. And so you really need to be sure not to skimp on protein as, as you get older. Um, and obviously, if you're doing strength training or things that are really taxing your muscles, where there's going to be a lot of repair going on in the, in the muscles, then, then protein is important. Um, but this idea that there's this magic window, recovery window, under which you have to get these nutrients in to optimize your recovery. It turns out that that's that's something that um, is really overstated. Um, I had one researcher tell me, you know, it's not a recovery window. It's more like a recovery barn door. <laughs> that as long as you're not. So there is a circumstance under which it's really important to get these, you know, nutrients in right away. And that is if you are about to perform again. So if you are, say, um, at a track meet where you're you're having one bout of exercise, and then you're going to do another one soon. Now, again, if, if you're doing something really short, you're probably not depleting a ton of energy. And so you don't, you don't need to get calories and calories and calories. A small snack will do it. But unless you're going to perform again, you know, within the next 10 or 12 hours, something like that, um, it's perfectly fine to just have your next meal, have a regular meal, eat what you would eat. Um, you're going to be okay. Um, you know, again, it's important to replenish those carbs and the but getting, you know, this really specific amount or getting it in a particular window just isn't nearly as important as you may have been told. So the anabolic window, as it's called, and the intro, right. all the intra-workout glucose drinks and stuff like that, is what's the efficacy of those? Yeah. So it turns out, you know, here the timing, it's not the timing that's magical. It's the nutrients themselves. So like there are some re- some studies looking at um, timing of protein and it's like, it turned out that it didn't matter. You could eat the protein before the workout or during the workout or after. And like the results were sort of the same. It, it wasn't, you know, that, that perfect timing that was making the difference. It was just that you were getting those nutrients to begin with. And so it looks as though protein spread out throughout the day is a really good approach rather than trying to take it all in one bolus right after a workout. Like it's, it's fine. You want to have protein in your diet. Um, you need to have carbs, particularly if you are um, doing endurance exercise. And I know I'm very familiar. I know that there's a, a debate going on about whether, uh, you know, this high fat, low carb diet is good good for athletes. And some people are, are proposing that. Um, but I think um, a lot of research is just showing that, you know, when you exercise hard, you do deplete carbohydrates. And that's what your body's fueling itself on during those those bouts. I was going to say, what's your stance on people doing marathons on keto? Um, I actually think I, I don't have like a really strong stance on this. So uh, if you go and look, I actually wrote a story for 538, um, where I'm the lead science writer, a few years ago, uh, I believe the headline was something like you can't trust what you read about nutrition. Um, maybe you can put it in the show notes. Um, 
but basically looking at nutrition studies. And it turns out that nutrition is just a really difficult thing to study. And a lot of the things that we think that we know about nutrition are, are based on pretty shoddy methodology and studies that that um, aren't nearly as definitive as we've been led to believe. Um, I think that there are a lot of ideas out there about diets. Um, a lot of it is more sort of religion than science. Mm-hmm. You know, people sort of take their stand. Um, and I think that it's totally legitimate for athletes to try different diets. And, you know, if someone finds that a keto diet works for them, go for it. I don't see any reason to tell them they absolutely can't do that. Um, I'm not convinced that it's performance enhancing. I mean, there was the, um, Louise Burke did a study of race walkers, elite race walkers, where she had them on this diet and it did not seem to improve performance. Um, but you know, there are people that swear by it. And I do think that your know, diet is something that's worth, um, playing around with on an individual level. But I think that we just don't have the evidence on a level of granularity that we want. We want to be able to say, if you eat exactly this much of this nutrient or this food or this, that, or the other thing, we'll get this outcome. But those things that we're looking at are so complicated that it's really hard to attribute that to one food or to one component of food. And so what ends up happening is, um, yeah, you have what are probably small effects, um, getting drowned out in a lot of the noise with the complexity of, of these issues that you're looking at. I get that. I get that completely. I think sweating the small stuff is, you know, athletes seem to be super concerned that their pre-digested vegan way that's paleo and and, <laughs> right. and and ethically sourced from the mountains of Kenya has been taken in with the right blend of MCT oil, this, this, and you think, yeah, mate, you're still in a calorie deficit and you're training four hours a day. Like you you don't sweat the small stuff, focus on, focus on the big winners, which I'm going to guess is making sure that you're eating enough and eating a varied diet. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the other thing to note here is that, you know, there are elite athletes in sports that eat very different diets, um, you know, and they're, they're performing well. So, you know, one athlete, you know, if you're a Norwegian skier, you probably start the day with toast and that brown um, sort of sweet cheese that they like to eat, you know, and that's not something that people generally eat in the U.S., but it works fine. And so, but to say that, you know, those Norwegian skiers are so fast because of the, the, the brown cheese is just ridiculous, this right? Brown, brown cheese is like the most Norwegian food, but Toast, right? toast and brown cheese is exactly what I thought Norwegian people ate. Um, why, yeah. Okay, so why, why does your symbol work well on chicken nuggets? Oh, well, I think it's an example of just showing that here you've got this guy who's the world's best sprinter, right? And like, so you can, you can decide that he needs to eat this like super specific special diet. But what he decided when he was at the Olympic village in Beijing and was worried about eating the local food because it was unfamiliar to him was that he was going to go for the thing that he knew he liked. He knew that, you know, he could digest it without problems. And so, you know, he ate a bunch of chicken nuggets at the Olympics Mm -hmm. and won a bunch of gold medals. And, you know, to suggest that that the, the chicken nuggets were the secret behind the gold medals is ridiculous. But I think you have to flip that around and also say that, you know, had he eaten something that we more traditionally thought was, you know, the performance enhancing, you know, some of the things you were mentioning, you know, the, the vegan protein or the, you know, whatever it is, uh, it would be just as ridiculous. And so, you know, what's important is that he got, he replenished the ca- calories that he needed. He got protein, he got carbohydrates, he got, you know, the basic nutrients. And so he was fine. And I think that um, one, one danger here is that if, if the things that you're doing for recovery or if your nutritional needs, so you're an athlete, you're on the road competing. And if it becomes so important to you that you have this special specific food that's hard to get, that just becomes a new source of stress. And it's, it's kind of the opposite of recovery and you're not doing yourself any favors. And chances are whatever benefit you're getting from that special food is being outweighed by the stress that you're experiencing by, you know, this need to to procure it yeah i suppose unless it's perhaps something that you know that you can always carry with you or whatever it might be right you you are right you're totally totally correct there so you touched earlier on upon massage soft tissue work uh, foam rolling and other techniques like that moving into that what what does the science say yeah it's really interesting um so i think massage is one of the most popular recovery modalities i know i'm a huge fan i love it i think most athletes like it and you know when you look at the science behind it there are a lot of of claims that are made so for instance that it's flushing your blood that's getting lactic 
lactic acid out of the muscles and that that's important. And I'll just say that um, whenever someone tells me that that something works by flushing lactic acid, I'm sort of like, okay, that that doesn't hold up because yeah, we used to think that lactic acid was what made you sore after a hard workout. And we now know that that's not the case. And regardless, it turns out that your muscles are really good at clearing lactic acid on their own. So by the time you're using one of these things, the lactic acid is probably gone to begin (laughs) with. (laughs) Um, but with massage, um, you know, there are claims that are made about, about this or, or, you know, hormones or flushing lactic acid, and those don't seem to stand up, but what massage really does and almost universally does is it makes people feel good. It makes someone lie down for an hour and relax. And yeah, they're not looking at their phone. They're not thinking about other things. Um, they're just sort of actively relaxing. And I think, you know, at its most basic level, that is recovery. You know, anything that makes you feel good, anything that that allows you to take some time out of your day to really give your body a chance to rejuvenate and to relax. That's recovery. And and that's working. Like we could consider that working. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So one of my first ever episodes is actually with Dr. Quinn Hennick, the doctor of physical therapy for juggernaut training systems. And in that Mm -hmm. podcast, he, uh, he said the sentence, there is no scientific basis to say that massage static stretching or dynamic stretching does anything on the mechanism that people think it think that it does work on and he used an analogy have you heard about the um experiment that was done using metal tools to do soft tissue work on rats have you seen this oh, uh, little, I think, little mice I think so little mice acls so they ruptured the mice's acls and then they they did some uh, some work with steel tools um, and one iteration of the study, they used it for soft, soft tissue work, and in another one, they didn't do anything. And they they did find that in the iteration of the study where they used this tool, that the recovery was quicker. But mm-hmm. what they didn't uh, explain was that the size of the tool that they were using was a human-sized tool, and the amount of pressure that they were applying was human pressure to a mouse, and mm-hmm. the uh, the study he he ran the, the the figures forward and basically worked out that your flesh would literally shear apart it would rip apart <laughs> before you created a one percent shear in the muscle right. tissue. So you know I think you're right, and it, it's it's interesting and also reassuring to hear that yeah. there isn't there isn't massive amounts of conflict between what what you've discovered and what he says as well. But that I think people presume that they're the lying on a foam roller that vibrates because it's working out adhesions in the muscle. It's helping with microscopic tears and stuff like that. And yet what the main mechanism it's working on appears to be activating the parasympathetic nervous system and just getting people to calm down and, and, and be in a state which is conducive to recovery. Is that, is that fair to say? Is that remotely oh, accurate? Yeah, you just explained it right there. I mean, it's just as you said that it's it's not. So one thing, this was sort of a recurring theme in my book is that there are a lot of things that people said worked and claimed worked and really, you know, were like, you can take this, you know, over my dead body, mm-hmm. take this away from me over my dead body. But oftentimes the explanations that were given didn't hold up. So it wasn't that it's not working, but it may just not be via the mechanisms that they say. And you've just explained it quite well um, about massage and particularly things that, that um, seem to target fascia. And it's interesting because fascia is something that's, um, this is an area of a lot of research right now, and I think it's very early days. So there's a lot more we don't know than that we do about fascia. And it may end up that, you know, there are things that we have not yet, you know, come to understand. So, um, you know, in terms of whether foam rolling is good or bad, um, I would say that right now the science that we have suggests that, you know, a lot of the way that it's working is really um, through um, the nerve system. It's it's not uh, so much that it's some physical mechanism there, but we're still you know, it's still early days with this. So there's lots, there's lots adv- to be discovered, right? There's lots to be discovered. And so my, my advice here is just sort of like, if you're doing it and you feel like it makes you feel better and you feel like it's quote unquote working, then keep doing it. There's no, like, there's nothing that I found that was like, oh my God, foam rolling is terrible. Stop doing mm. it. At the same time, I did not find any compelling reason why it should be done. So if you're someone and I've had multiple people tell me, please tell me I can stop foam rolling. And <laughs> if you're one of those people, I give you, I hereby give you license to not do it divorce because, you know, that, yourself from your phone yeah. roller you don't need to take yeah. cust- you don't need to take custody of the lacrosse
cross balls. You can leave right. that with the foam roller in your kit bag. Um, one thing that's just come to my mind there, did you look at um, recovery in short bouts? So let's say that someone's doing a five by one mile or five by 400 meters with, you know, a couple of minutes rest in between. Did you look at that, at that super short period uh, recovery and what people can do? Cause I am used to lying on the floor and uh, 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 hoping that the world will stop spinning. But I have been told by numerous coaches that I need to s- stand the fuck up. Um, yeah. So it, did you look at that? Um, a little bit. So there, there is some, there is some evidence potentially that um, in that sort of scenario that a little bit of massage can be helpful, um, that sometimes uh, something cold might help. Um, but really, one thing that's really great is just really light uh, exercise. I mean, when I was a high school runner, we used to call it a warm down or, or a warm up, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, but that easy activity, it could be, you know, on the Tour de France, oftentimes you'll see the guys spinning on their trainers um, after a race. Um, but where you're just sort of keeping the blood flow going so that, that um, you know, the, the muscles are warm, that that um, you're, you're still doing some motion without it being taxing. What, and so why is that a good idea? Because, you know, for me as a lame, lay person thinking about the body, I think, right, it's worked as hard as it can. Now it needs to not work as hard as it can. Whereas this is more like a middle ground. Right. It's kind of a middle ground. And I'll just say that we don't have compelling evidence that this is like absolutely necessary. And, uh, you know, an interesting thing that I learned while working on this book is that so many of the things that we do in sport are based more on sort of like, we've been doing this, it seems to work and beliefs about like, well, this is how we did it before and we've had success then on hard scientific evidence. And this isn't to say that like people aren't, don't care about evidence or they're trying to um, push off things that don't work, but just that the stuff is really hard to measure sometimes and it's hard to study. And so if something's working, there's a lot of compelling or, you know, if it's perceived to be working, there's you know compelling reasons there in many cases to keep doing it. And so, um, you know, if we don't know for sure, whether it's good, then a lot of people will say, well, I like it. So yep. <laughs> some cases that may be And that's that good. Be that's enough. good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we, we talked about the, the cryo chamber stuff, like this, these super cooled uh, mm-hmm. t- kind of tanks that you step into, right? And it goes to some insanely low temperature. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's quite an adrenaline rush, I'll say. Just how cold does it feel? I've I've never been in one, and uh, you know I step outside my door sometimes in the middle of January in the north of England, and I think I could last for about five seconds. So it's about that cold. Okay, fair enough. I mean, does it does it work? And is there any evidence to suggest it works? And Um, I could not find any compelling evidence that that these cryo tanks were performance enhancing or recovery enhancing. that said, and some of the claims that are made about them are just ridiculous. I mean, I have a scene in the book where I'm sort of relaying some of the claims that have been made to me um, by a, a purveyor of cryotherapy. And the sports science expert that I'm talking about starts laughing because, I mean, they're they're really that what, laughable. What are the claims? <laughs> um, things about... Um, super oxygenating the blood which of course isn't a thing and um you know doing all these crazy hormone things um but i think at the end of the day why people like this so much is um i also have a whole chapter in the book about placebos and the placebo effect and i think it's worth reading because one of the things that i get into there and it's probably beyond the scope of our discussion here but it's just how um some people and some coaches are using the placebo effect to good for good. So we kind of tend to think of the placebo effect as a sign that, well, it doesn't work, but it turns out that, you know, our bodies are really powerful and the expect an expectation that we have can be, you know, in some cases almost like a powerful drug. And so I don't think that this is something we should dismiss and it is worth thinking about whether it's something to harness. And I think that, um, you know, my experience, the cryo chamber really had a strong, uh, you know, seem to be set up to have a, a strong placebo effect because um, there's pretty good evidence that placebos that are unpleasant work better than things that are pleasant or that you know, don't have anything. So like taking a pill, placebo pill is less effective than having a placebo shot, for instance. Mm. Um, but the other thing I could say, so it turns out that cryotherapy, the, the 
tanks are really popular among martial arts fighters. And I could totally understand this because you get in there and then you, you get out and you just have this like feeling of being totally pumped and totally amped. And it's just this huge adrenaline rush. Mm -hmm. And I can totally get why that would feel great before a match and just really get you ready. Um, but in terms of like, is this going to make you recover better? There's just not good evidence for that. So the mechanism, again, what we're talking about here is that it's how it makes you feel and potentially that it's making you think about your recovery and spend some time on it. What, yeah. uh, what one of the, the super cool things that uh, I spoke to Dr. Greg Potter from University of Leeds about the sleep expert was he said that the, the placebo effect is the most reliable effect in all, all of pharmacology. And if we were somehow able to bottle a placebo, we would have a panacea. And you're like, well, oh, yeah. it, it's so hilarious that so, <laughs> that you've got this thing which kind of doesn't work, but the fact that it doesn't work is the reason it does work. And it, it's this, <laughs> this like universal snake oil, but it's actually kind of got, it's, it's really, it's, I find the concept, my increasingly deep understanding of what placebos can do. It, it's, yeah. I, I really, really enjoy it. So moving forward, what were some of the crazier approaches for recovery that you came across? Obviously crazier than super cooling your body to like minus 50 right, degrees. Right, right. Crazy's in the eye of the beholder, right? Yeah. Um, I think when someone asked me the other day if there was anything that like I refused to try and one of them, um, there are places now that you can go to get IV injections of vitamins mm -hmm. and things. And this is supposed to aid recovery. And I actually have a whole chapter in the book about, about supplements, nutritional supplements, in, including vitamins. Um, and so I said, absolutely not. I'm not, I'm not going to inject these things. I mean, my research showed that, that uh, none of these things were likely to be helpful in the first place. And the idea of injecting them into my bloodstream just seemed like foolishness. So the IV drips, because there's in yeah. America, it's not the same in the UK at the moment, but in uh -huh. America, I know, especially in like party towns like Vegas, you can go and get like a hangover drip, right? You like, you wake up oh, one yeah. morning and you, you suffering a little bit and then you go in and they, they fill you up with this, with this drip and you lie there for an hour and then your hangover magically goes away. Oh yeah. So the one that I was at, they actually had, I was watching, there was a couple there um, dressed in, in, I'll just say, uh, clothes that made me think that uh, these were high-end parties. They had just flown in that morning oh, from wow. a party in Aspen. So this was in Denver. So they had just flown in specifically to get this IV and, you know, it was clearly uh, intended to undo whatever damage they may have done partying the night before. <laughs> it's I, I find the whole concept of like a medical procedure to undo a hangover. I mean, to be fair, I've had some hangovers where I've wished that a doctor would be able to come and fix it. So maybe it's just, yeah. a bit, maybe it's just, let's an be honest. We've all, we've all had at least one morning where we wished for such a thing. I right? just want the fucking pill yeah. or the IV drip or <laughs> right. whatever it is. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get that. Um, so you, you mentioned that the, the IV drips were in there with the craziest stuff. Was it, was there anything else that you came across that you were surprised by or couldn't believe? Yeah. And so, okay. So I live in Colorado. I'll just preface this by saying, and so we're at high altitude and so, and we get a lot of tourists and so people worry about the altitude and whatnot, but I was seeing in multiple places that I went, these oxygen inhalers. So the idea is you inhale the straight oxygen and that was going to make you feel better, which, um, you know, if you had a medical condition or were truly, you know, low in oxygen, uh, that could be helpful. I think anyone who's really an athlete and in decent shape is probably not in that category. And it's just not going to be helping you. I mean, even at higher altitude of the order that most places in Colorado are, it's mm -hmm. that's not going to be the thing that's that's you know the limiting factor in your recovery. You've you've touched upon it there. Altitude chambers, I'm going to guess, are a, a, a commonly used tool for Tour de France athletes and endurance athletes, I suppose. Yeah, they are. And they, these aren't used, I'll just say, these aren't used so much for recovery as for training. So it's really about getting adaptations and whatnot. Um, but they do seem, um, you know, it's interesting. The literature shows that there may be responders and lesser responders to altitude, which is kind of interesting. Some people go to altitude or use an altitude chamber and really get more red blood cells and whatnot, and others don't. I think we're still trying to sort of figure out how that all um, lays out. But these have been used for a long time and seem to be an effective training tool, particularly if you're going to be competing at altitude. That is super interesting. It's, um, I guess, again, as you said earlier on, horses for courses, right? That you need to kind of yeah. learn learn what works for you. So one thing that I wanted to touch on before we finished up was 
did you find uh, any particular individuals who have a, an unnatural ability to recover or some people who have particularly poor abilities to recover? Is there a, a big swing with regards to that? Absolutely. And I think that this is, I mean, this is in a way similar. I, I think it's a, a different skill or a different talent. Um, but just as some people respond really quickly or really well to training, there are some people that need more or less recovery. And I talk about one person in the book, her name is Camille Heron. She's an ultra marathoner and she seems to have just a super natural ability to recover. It's quite remarkable. Um, she kind of got into the ultra endurance events after figuring out that she could do marathons in a row. And, you know, there are people that do many marathons, you know, seven marathons in seven days and things like that. But usually they're sort of in it to, to finish and which is a huge accomplishment. You know, she's someone who can actually perform at a, a high level doing that. And she is now doing ultra marathons. She currently holds the world record, um, for a 100, I'm sorry, a 100 mile run for any person of any gender um, on a certified course. So she's she's an amazing athlete, and so she that, seems to that, really that record back. for a hundred a hundred mile run is currently held by a female. Mm-hmm. That's right. That is crazy. Why do you think is that, that is? Um, I think it's because she's an extraordinary athlete. And, okay. And, um, yeah. If you're asking why, you know, is this the event? There's, you know, this is a whole. Uh, topic of conversation that's been ongoing for a long time, you know, is there an event where women could outperform men? And there's a lot of thought that maybe, you know, if there was such a thing, an endurance event might be that because of differences in metabolism and things like that. So that may be part of it. Um, I also think that this is an event, you know, that she is someone who is very elite and it's probably, you know, some of it is that these things are somewhat new. They're not entirely new. Um, but yeah, I think she's just an incredible athlete and I don't think that her her biggest accomplishments are yet behind her. Wow. I mean, that's to have to have a, a an event like that which is ultra ultra running where you wouldn't have considered a woman to be winning the 100 meters and you roll that right. forward and you go, well, why is 100 miles any different? As far as, you know, I I didn't know that fact and in my experience the main endurance event that women had an advantage in as far as I knew was swimming, long distance swimming because of the particular makeup of their body and changes in buoyancy and their ability to move through the water and stuff like that. But to hear that the 100 mile uh, race is, is currently held by a woman, that's that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It it's really awesome. Is. So Christy, can you tell the listeners where they can find you online and where they can find your book? Yeah. So my book is www.goodtogobook.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Craig Crest. Um, that's C-R-A-G-C-R-E-S-T as in like Craig, Craggy, Crest. It's, <laughs> it's a place name. It's, it's actually the name of my favorite trail run. Um, and then my website is my name, christiaschwanden.com. Fantastic. I will make sure that the link to good to go and all of your socials, plus all some good articles that we've spoken about will be in the show okay. notes below. I had one one other little thing to plug, and that is um, next month. So in f- mid-February of 2019, I'm launching a new podcast. It's a little bit of a departure from what we've been talking about, but it's called Emerging Form, and it's a podcast about the creative process. Uh, my co-host is a poet, and we basically spend 30 minutes each episode talking about some creative conundrum, and then we bring on a guest to help us answer some questions. And I do think that there are a couple of episodes that would be interesting, though, to athletes as well. Um, one of the ones that I really like is about talent and whether it's necessary, and so we have a pretty good debate about that. That sounds, and, uh, you that can- sounds fascinating. Yeah, you can find it. It hasn't launched yet, but it will soon. And it's at emergingform.com. Amazing. Well, once that's up, make sure that you send it across and I will fire it out to the listeners. But in the meantime, awesome. uh, hopefully we will have helped some people understand their recovery. I, I genuinely think that if if everyone was to go back and listen to Alex Hutchinson's episode where he talks about endurance and then comes to this, hopefully we've got, you know, your training sorted and you know your RPE and then you've got your recovery sorted and you've got your RPR and now you just need to go and sleep and then lift some weights. That's right. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for coming on today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. Bye-bye.